1938, as Hitler was consolidating power, he annexed Austria into Germany. And the response from Austria was interesting. Some were overwhelmingly excited about being united to Germany. Others saw the writing on the wall and were not happy, and some even tried to flee. They were arrested. Um, some were sent in prison. Some were executed. And, and you go throughout Germany, and the response is, is diverse. And then you land in a very insignificant, seemingly insignificant farming village named Radigand. And everyone in Radigand voted in favor of the annex, except for one man. One man refused to sign, and the officials in the town wanted to keep things looking positive, so they actually lied and said that the vote went through unanimous. And then as the annex went through, all the men in Austria were conscripted to fight in the army, and so this individual was called up. And um, when you were called up, you had to pledge allegiance to Hitler. And this man refused to do so. And so in 1940, he was put in prison, where he spent three years in prison, and then he was executed for never pledging his loyalty to Hitler. The man's name was Franz Jagerstadter, somebody that I'm sure most of us have never heard of. And yet he was convicted that what he saw happening was evil. And his belief in Christ didn't permit him, even at the cost of losing his wife, his three children, even at the cost of his own pastor saying, it doesn't matter what you do. It only matters what's in your heart. He was unable to shake that. It's a dramatic example, right, of going against the tide of the world around you. And thankfully, most of us will never have to face such a difficult decision. And yet, we can relate to the idea of being in a setting where maybe everyone around us is doing something different from the way that we think it should be done. And the temptation that we experience to follow the ways of those around us. And those temptations might look different for every one of us in the room, right? For some of us, right, when you're with a certain group of friends, maybe the language that we use gets a little bit looser, right? We're tempted to speak and to say words we wouldn't say in another setting, right? Or maybe you have the type of job that requires you to court clients or, or customers, and that brings you to places you don't want to be. I know Courtney has had times where she's had to take clients out to dinner, and the, the setting has not been comfortable. She's at times even excused herself, right? She didn't feel comfortable. What are the things that you, in particular, struggle with? What are, in particular, the things you're tempted to do when you're surrounded by everybody who's doing one thing, and you know that you're not supposed to be doing that thing? What do you feel, when you feel called by Christ to go the other way, what do you do? Well, this morning, the text, Paul speaks to that experience of the Christian, that because we're surrounded by unbelievers, there's this constant temptation pulling at us to behave like the world around us. And he's going to encourage us in two ways. He's going to encourage us to avoid the ways of the world and then be renewed in the spirit by putting on Christ. And so hear now God's word as we read verses 17 through 24, and they'll be up on the screen as well. Uh, this is Ephesians chapter 4. Now I say this, and I testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do 
in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that's not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is God's word, all God's people say, amen. So we're in the second half of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And if you remember about a month ago, um, Pastor Tom started um, this passage by talking about what it means to be a mature church. What does it mean to be a church that is mature? And he talked about Paul's encouragement for us to be humble and patient with one another as members of his body. And he reminded us that we're united to one another by Christ. He also talked about how our unity, right, is not at the expense of our diversity, but that when God's church is working properly, we have people with all different backgrounds, all different life experiences that have been united by the Spirit and are able to do something great through God's power. Well, today, Paul continues to encourage the church, right, and he reminds us of another threat. So if one threat for the church is to be disunified, to be dis disunified to one another, an internal threat. Another threat is the external threat of being tempted, being tempted to follow the ways of the surrounding world. And so this morning's text focuses on the latter. And Paul begins really swiftly in verse 17, right? He says, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. So Paul begins with this picture of walking. And it's a common picture. Don't, don't we use that picture so often today to describe life, right? We say, we say things like this journey we call life, right? Or we ask questions like, where are you going in your life? Or we say things to ourselves like, especially as the new year's approaching, where am I headed? Where am I going, right? And we might be saying these things right as we're sitting, as we're eating breakfast. We use this metaphor of being on a journey. And that's the picture that Paul is painting. And he's saying that those that aren't in a relationship with God are on an aimless journey because they're not thinking rightly about God. And if we're not rightly thinking about God, we don't rightly think about ourselves or about the world around us. We're walking in all sorts of directions, trying to find meaning and purpose in all the wrong things. The marriage therapist John Gottman has famously done a lot of studies with married couples and has noted that 70% of the conflicts you have with your spouse are things that are going to repeat. They're unreconcilable. They're not little things you can change. They're fundamental differences between you and the person you've married. And one of mine with Courtney has actually nothing to do with her. It has everything to do with her phone. (laughs) Courtney is the navigator in, in the relationship, so she wants me to drive and she's the navigator. And her phone is unreliable and aimless in its directions. Last Sunday after church, we went as a family, we went down to Lancaster for a little while to ride a train with the kids. And we're on the road where it's always when we're in an unfamiliar place, so I have no idea where we are. And the, the, the phone says to go north, but then it says, it, it, it says 
um, towards Lancaster, but North was going towards Philly, South was going towards Lancaster. We have to make a decision, and we end up going the wrong way. And I was like, again, again, this phone is not trustworthy. And that's the picture Paul is, is painting here, right? This fruitless journey where you're not ending up where you're supposed to end up. And that's because people are not seeing things as they really are. And Paul builds on this metaphor in, in verse 18. He says, they're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God. So why are we traveling aimlessly when we're apart from God? Well, because our minds are darkened. And this is crucial to understand. If we're alienated from God, if we don't know God, if we don't love God, the only result is to be in the dark about the most important truth. So if we're building on this metaphor, it's like traveling somewhere, but it's the pitch black of night, you're in the woods, you have no flashlight, and there's no way you know where you're going. You're not seeing things as they really are. Because the one who made us, we don't believe in. The one who made everything that we see, we deny exists. And so now a world that's filled with meaning and with purpose and with beauty, right, becomes this oddity, this strange thing that is random. And now people that have been made with dignity and with purpose in his image are just a random, a product of random events. And Paul says this has a progressive effect over time. And he says one of the factors is the hardness of heart that we develop. As we walk away from God and choose meaning apart from him, things that initially bothered us or caused us to stop and pause no longer do. Well, we start to see the world wrongly, crookedly. We become hardened or calloused. This is a disturbing example, but there's a professor at Princeton, 45 minutes away, always in the top three of the best universities in our country, right? And he's a bioethics professor. This is the guy you go to when you want to know how to do ethical work, especially related to life, right? Well, he's been arguing since the 70s that it's ethical to allow parents to euthanize, to kill their children if they have severe disabilities. He explains in his book, Practical Ethics, that the value of a life should be based on rationality, autonomy, and self-consciousness. And this is a quote, defective infants lack these characteristics. Killing them, therefore, can't be equated with killing normal human beings. Now, what's fascinating is this same man has been heaped with awards from animal rights organizations because of all the work he's done to talk about how much animals are like human beings. He's a great animal activist. See, we go to the, the finest university in our country, the greatest minds, and this is what one of them has chosen to teach. And I read an article about a girl who, whose family has severe disabilities and the conversation that she had with him. Brilliant, and yet seemingly missing the point, a darkened mind. But we don't have to go to such an extreme example, right? There are other forms of hardness. Maybe it's a particular sin we struggle with. Maybe too much drinking or too much drugs, right? And over time, we become hardened towards that, right? We don't even get the same experience, right, unless we do more. The more we engage in certain sins, the less we're even bothered by them, right? They're not important anymore. And so with darkened minds and with this aimless wandering, right, Paul says people have given themselves up to sensuality and to greed to practice every kind of impurity. 
Now, it would be a mistake to think that Paul is talking about a specific sin, that we need to just stop doing one thing. He's, he's describing a heart condition. And he's going to go on in the next several verses, um, in the next chapter even, talking about some outworkings of this. But the idea is that we're so self-focused, right, and we derive our meaning and our pleasure from everything that we can see, taste, touch, and feel, right? And so because of that, we engage in all sorts of activities in an attempt to find meaning and purpose. There was a song I heard on the way um, yesterday. I was, I was uh, from Kesha, right? And she says, I want to go to heaven, but first I want to raise some hell, right? And that describes, I think, a lot of the experiences of, of people in the church, right? We feel like if we don't have all these life experiences, right, then, you know, heaven's not going to be fun. So we better have the fun now, right? But that's assuming that what is awaiting us is not going to be the best and the greatest and that somehow these limited experiences we could have now would somehow surpass that, right? So apart from God, we become seekers, right? We have to experience it all because this is all there is. And so we seek meaning in created things and we try to fill that void. And that may remind us, since we just went through the book of Acts, of Paul's own experience of this in Ephesus. If you guys remember in chapter 19, right, people are coming to faith in Ephesus and one of the silversmiths who makes the shrines for one of the gods that the Ephesians worship is seeing a drop in his business. And he freaks out and he gets all of the silversmiths to gather and they start a riot in the city, right? That's what a heart that's been darkened does. We know from Acts that not everybody that heard Paul's preaching was converted. This guy is having an overblown reaction, right? Because his wallet is being affected. And his wallet is tied to who he is, his identity, what he mean, his meaning and his purpose as the silversmith, the chief silversmith. And it's tied to his ability to do the things that he wants to do. So how do we suffer from similar thinking? Well, I think we're a lot like Demetrius. We're a lot like him. We, we suffer from materialism. And we can find contentment or try to find contentment and meaning in things. Tim Keller's wife, Kathy, wrote a powerful blog in the weeks leading up to Christmas for the Gospel Coalition, and she wanted to argue that all of us struggle with materialism. It's not just those of us who want that big house in the hills or go on that crazy vacation. No, all of us have this struggle. And she said this, she says, you may have no craving for designer fashion or statement jewelry or cars or yachts or other symbols of elite status, but ask yourself this, how much of my contentment is based on this world providing me with blank? Fitting into my size six clothing, being able to take the family out to Shake Shack without counting pennies, the affection of a pet, a salary however small, status however low, possessions however modest. If our hearts are tied to these things beyond the affection we feel for the familiar, then we're materialists. Losing such commonplace comforts will always cause a degree of regret but does it overthrow your happiness? If so, you're a materialist, and since this world is passing away, materialism is in the same category as building your house on the sand. Is that not the philosophy of the world we live in? A lot of you know that this summer I got to go on a cruise. My mom took all of us on a cruise. She retired. She got a big payout from the state of New Jersey for all of her unused vacation days. And she brought us on this wonderful vacation to Alaska. 
and you're on a boat for days, right? And you're trying to do anything to pass the time. You're singing karaoke, you're playing games, you're swimming, you're going to the gym, you're watching shows. But as you approach the ports, right, they, they shuffle you into the theater to tell you what you're about to experience. And you're anxious and excited. You're finally going to see the places you've been on the boat for days getting to. And what we found was they weren't, they didn't mention even once the sights we were going to see. Instead, what they focused on, the shopping that we could do in the ports. And our presentation on this type of silver that you could only get at Ketchikan, or this specific pendant that you could only get in Juno. And you start to see people get off the boat, and in the midst of this gorgeous mountain and these glaciers, they're single filing it to the, to the shops thinking that they're gonna miss something if they don't get this thing. And she used really powerful language. You will not have the vacation you've paid for if you don't get that pendant. And you see people like, you know? And then you get to the next port and you see that the stores are the same stores and they're selling the same pendant that she said you could only get at the first one. And that the stores are owned by the cruise lines. It's all about money. We just went through Christmas. I'm sure a lot of the kids were excited about opening presents, right? And we see that play out in Christmas as well, right? They had to get this one toy or thing, and then yet in a couple of weeks, they forget about it. There's a new thing that they want. And we see in our own children the empty promises of materialism. And we donate their toys, and yet we then fall prey to the same thing as adults, don't we? We think that we need to get certain things. We derive our hope and our joy in these material things. And the effect is sometimes subtle, right? You might, some, some of you in here have a reputation for having the cool stuff. Or you're the, you're the person that has the new fashion. You look good. You know what to wear. And slowly, people start to expect that of you. People look, what, do you, what is she wearing? What is he wearing? I know that they dress well, right? Or what TV does he have, right? And slowly, that becomes a part of your identity. It starts to give you worth. Now you need to get that stuff because you know people expect that of you. People look to you for that. And so you've embraced that that makes you important. And it's now hard to tease apart from your own personal interests, isn't it? Or maybe you derive meaning from a big purchase, right? A house, a special TV, or even a gift you're able to give someone, right? There's some value in saying intrinsically about yourself, I'm now a, home, I'm a homeowner. That means something about me as a person. When it all it says is that you had the money to do it. It says nothing about you as a person. Look, we were all made to live forever with God. And when we deny that, we still live with a desire for meaning and purpose. And oftentimes we try to find it in our stuff. But our meaning and purpose is aimless when it's not founded in God. Now, it's easy to read these verses, right, and think of some self-righteous Christian passing judgment, right? You hear this and you think, well, if you're a Christian, I'm not like them. I'm so glad my eyes have been opened, right? And a lot of times, people in the church sound cold towards unbelievers. But if that's you, you might have a different form of the same problem. Because you see, embedded in Paul's warning, which I, heard, I hope you heard in the way that I read it, is a lament, we should be sad if somebody doesn't place their hope in Christ. It's not some cold, heartless mockery. Paul is a pastor making a plea 
to people. Don't go down a path that's going to lead to your suffering. And the reason why he could speak this way is Paul suffered from a darkened mind. He had a mind subject to futility. He had a hardened heart. And it wasn't darkened by not believing in God. It was darkened by believing that by his obedience to the law, he could somehow gain God's favor. He was somehow pleasing to God. You see, trusting in our good works is another form of aimless lostness. Paul arrested Jews who worshipped Christ. He was celebrating when Stephen was murdered. He thought obedience was his salvation, and it made him proud. It made him hateful, and it alienated him from God. So maybe you don't struggle with materialism, but you find meaning in your good works, in your faithfulness and volunteering. If we think we earn our favor with God, it only points to another element of being darkened or futile. We don't see things as they really are. So what do we do? How do we avoid the trap of walking down an aimless path? Well, Paul points us to the only one who can save us. He pivots in verse 20 and he makes this strong contrast with what an unbelieving heart looks like to what a believing mind looks like. And he says in verse 20, that's not how you learned Christ. It's like Paul is shaking those of us who are Christians and saying, that's not the Jesus you know. That's not the Jesus, that, the life that he lived. Who is Jesus? What did he do? You belong to him now. Learned Christ is kind of a strange phrase, right? But he's not speaking of just knowing facts about Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God. He lived the perfect life. He died for my sins. I trusted him and then I'm forgiven. He's talking about being united to Jesus, to knowing him intimately and personally. Paul's saying, when you talk to Jesus, are you in the presence of someone who had an aimless, wandering life? Are you talking to somebody who woke up in the morning early to be in his Father's presence, who had a life of prayer, right? who thought, who came not to be served, but to serve? To know Christ means to be impacted by your relationship with him. To know the only one who can love you perfectly is not your wife, is not your child or your husband or your mother or your father. It's the Son of God who died to bring you home to himself. The one who knows every single thing about you and loves you anyway. To know the one that even when you wander off the path that leads to him, in pursuing that new car or that home or that job or that TV, he's looking for you. He's searching you out to take you back home and embrace you when the world has let you down. To know that you're his beloved, that he's praying for you constantly. And you see, when you know Christ, when you've learned Christ, you see the futility in living a life apart from God. Because he does everything that the world promises to do and doesn't. He deals with your loneliness. He'll never leave you or forsake you. He deals with your relationships. He's your brother, always in your corner. He deals with your past and future sins. You have been forgiven definitively by the blood of Christ. He deals with your success and your failures. He won't love you more for your successes, and he won't love you less for your failures. He deals with your death, 
in him you have resurrection life. He deals with your meaning and worth. You're made in his image. You're infinitely valuable to him. Paul continues to encourage the Ephesians as he writes, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Put on the new self created after the likeness of God. Paul's encouraging Christians to put off their former life. And there's disagreement among the commentators about how we read this. Is this saying, having put off your former life? Is this something that's already happened? Or is this a command? Put off your old self. And if you look at Paul's letters, I'm not going to read all these quotes, but this is all over his letters in Colossians, in Galatians, in Romans. He says things like, having put on the new self. And then in Galatians, you were baptized into Christ. You have put on Christ. And then in Romans, right, put, it up, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So what's Paul getting at here? Well, Paul wants us to have both in mind. Because you are new, act like you are new. We can't be commanded to live new lives unless we've already been made new creatures, unless we've already been filled with the Holy Spirit. Sure, in our own strength, we could do it for a while, but it doesn't work. We become judgmental of others, right? We can't maintain it forever. And then we're devastated when we fail. There's a fun pop culture reference. I'm not at all endorsing this movie, but this caricature of a character captures what it looks like when we do things in our own strength. I don't know how many of you have seen the movie Dodgeball, but White Goodman, played by Ben Stiller, right, is this self-made man. He's, he was overweight, he was ugly, he got plastic surgery and he lost weight and got fit. And he built this gym from nothing into a multi-million dollar enterprise. And what is he? He's proud. He walks around with his head up, looking down on anybody who weighs more than he does. Right? And he's got to maintain it. He shocks himself every day with a donut in front of him just to keep him from, from falling prey to that temptation. Right? And so he looks down on everybody else. He's proud. But he can't maintain it. And what ends up happening is he loses in a dodgeball tournament to these average guys, the average Joes, right? And at the end of the movie, the last image we have of him is morbidly obese eating donuts because it depended on him and he failed. And so he was crushed. We can't do it in our own strength. And yet, for those of us that identify as believers, we have to admit, even with the Holy Spirit, it's hard to take off the old self, isn't it? It's kind of like those old undershirts that we just don't want to throw in the garbage, right? They're soft. They're comfortable. Those new shirts, they're kind of crinkly, right? So Paul reminds us to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. It's not just taking off the old self, right? It's putting on the new. And commentators say this is radical. If you read Greek literature from the time, virtue literature, they would say things all the time like, put off hate, put on love, take off selfishness, put on selflessness. That was commonplace. And we see that right in our self-help literature today, right? Be your best self by just thinking good things, right? Or have positive outcomes, positive mind shifts. But that's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, put on a new person. Paul doesn't start to tell us how to live before he tells us what's been done. Put on a new person. You've been made a new person in Christ. 
And because we're new, we're able to put on the new. You've been given the new suit. It's already yours. It's like being paralyzed by sin. We once couldn't do a thing. And now we can move. But we got to go to the gym. Practice putting on the new. It won't automatically feel natural. A couple of years ago, playing basketball with the youth, I knew I didn't know how to throw a basketball. And so Peter Lee was gracious and humble, and he taught me how to throw the basketball the proper way, right? For years, I was just, by sheer force, just kind of chucking the ball up. And he's like, no, no, no. Have the two hands, one to steady it, right? Have the ball roll off your fingers, follow through, jump, right? And within an hour, I had greater success, but it felt super awkward. I still had the temptation to just jump and throw the ball the way I had done for most of my life. It's not going to feel normal. And yet as you grow in our community, as you hear God's word, you're given strength in the spirit to follow him, to practice faith, hope, and love. Yeah, you're going to fail. It's not always going to feel the way you want it to feel. But God is at work. And day to day you're being renewed in the image of Christ. And that's why reading God's word and being in this community is so vital. Because God uses it to grow us into his son, to the image of his son. You know, there's secular illustrations, right, about what the practice of putting on something can do. And my favorite is Tom Cruise. I was hoping that Mi Young and, and Jason or Mi Young cannot stand Tom Cruise. But anyway, Tom Cruise, right? If you've followed his story, he's remarkable. This guy has rescued a family from a burning sailboat. He helped a victim of a hit and run and then went to the hospital and paid her medical bills. And then at a screening of one of the Mission Impossible movies, the paparazzi was crushing to get close to him and they ended up like stomping on these two young boys who wanted to get close to him. And they were being pinned by one of those metal bars and they were screaming and he parted the sea and got to these people and saved these kids. And I have no doubt that the reason he has behaved this way is for 30 years, he's been an action hero. He's played the role of saving people's lives year after year. And so when he's in these situations, he puts on the role and he steps in. He plays the hero. But the difference for you and I is we don't have to play. We have been made new. We have been given God's Holy Spirit. We are new creatures, and therefore we have an ability to do something that we can't do in our own strength. So how do we do it when we fail, when we're discouraged? Well, we have to remember it's not mainly about us. It's only about him. Jesus has done it. Your sin has been forgiven. You've been made a new person. You're being made more like Jesus every day. And the fuel is supplied by God, by your union with Christ and the promise of the place he's made for you. Some New Testament scholars have an interesting thought that this passage, Paul might have the book of Zechariah in mind, particularly chapter 8. And if you remember, about a year and a half ago, we preached this book. This is a prophet that's speaking to God's people when they return from Babylon. And things are hard for them and they're discouraged. And Zechariah preaches words of encouragement. And in chapter 8, there's a remarkable passage where he first begins by telling them what God is going to do. And he says, 
So again, I have proposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem. Fear not. I'm going to do this. And then as a result, and this is where I think the scholars think is going on, he says, speak the truth. You shall do this. Render gates in your judgments that are true. Make for peace. Don't do evil in your hearts. Love no false oath. He gives these commands, but then he paints the picture of where they're going to be. And guys, it's, it's beautiful. He says, old men and old women will sit in the streets of Jerusalem with a staff in hand because of great age. He says, the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. There'll be a sowing of peace. The vine will give its fruit. The ground shall give its produce. In those days, ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew and say, let's go with you. We know God is with you. On Christmas Eve, Courtney and I took the kids to do some last-minute shopping at the Willow Grove Mall, and there was a shooting scare. We heard some loud booms. Somebody yelled, gun. And in a, in a split moment, right, Chick-fil-A was on the floor. I was running with Asher and Malachi in a stroller to the nearest store to get out of there. Courtney carrying Marilyn, who was mad about her chicken nuggets <laughs> being left behind. And we're in the back of this store, people on the ground in the changing room, and girls are weeping. And Marilyn's looking at me, she's like, Daddy, why are those girls crying? And yet we read this and we know that this is what God has done for us through Jesus. He's guaranteed our ending point, and it's glorious. Don't believe the lies of materialism. Don't believe in your failures or your successes. Focus on the one that has saved you and where he's taking you. Can you tell people where you're going? Not that you've already gotten there. That, not that you haven't figured it out. Not that you're perfect. No, but that the one who has saved you is showing you where you're going and that you want those around you to join you. We began this morning with Franz Jagerstadter, right? He had been made a new man. At one point, his lawyer says, sign this document and you will go free. And his response was, I'm already free. I'm already free in this prison because I'm a new man and I know what Christ has for me. New desires. Franz knew where he was going. You are destined for that same place. That's where Christ is taking all of us. And it's with that joy of what's coming that we desire to put on the new. Because we know that it points to that glorious place he's taking us.